and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Hey, uh, this morning, uh, first, it's good to be with you. If you're visiting with us, it's great to have you. My name's Kurt, uh, the lead pastor here. Really great to have you with us. We're in a series in Revelation, and so we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5 this morning, if you want to go there. Um, and then a little bit about what's coming up in the next few weeks. Um, so we're looking at the throne of God uh, this last week and, and this week, chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, and uh, John's vision uh, of being brought into God's throne room. Next week, Ben Lynn, uh, who is a missionary that we support in Ireland, I've actually known Ben for, gosh, going towards 20 years. Um, but, uh, but Ben is going to be here next week. He's going to be in the country for a wedding. And then he'll be speaking at the services next week as well, giving us an update on what's happening in Ireland, as well as uh, the, the team that was over there just recently. And we'll get a little bit of an update from then, them. And then Ben is going to teach from John chapter 20. The week after that, we'll return to the book of Revelation. And uh, one of my friends who I've uh, played some sports with over the years became a missionary. And he's doing some work in the Middle East. He'll be in town, and we'll share a little bit about what's going on uh, with what God is doing in the Middle East. So we get a little bit about what God's doing in Europe, a little bit about what God is doing in the Middle East, as well as uh, some great topics within the Scriptures. So I, I hope that stuff excites you. To me, it's really great to hear uh, how God is using different people in different places, the same Word, same Spirit, same God, um, and He is His truth is is all about this world, and it's pretty amazing to see Him work. Um, as we as we look at this passage this morning. And we're going to be talking about uh, worship. And so uh, there's going to be a lot of worship of God within his throne room. Uh, you have some different characters in this passage. You have John who is there. Uh, you have uh, four living creatures who we looked at last week are angelic beings that are in the throne room of God and they constantly worship God. Uh, there's 24 elders and these elders are representative of believers throughout the ages uh, that are there within that, this throne room as well. And so they're all worshiping God and particularly they're going to worship Jesus as the lamb who was slain. And so many of the songs that we just sang kind of reminded us of, of that. Uh, on your handout, and I do encourage you to follow along on your handout, what I try and do is have the text there for you with a little bit of some explanation about the text, um, as well as this opening idea here. Uh, and so the opening idea here is that human beings, by our very nature, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. We cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. And so sort of the question that we're led to wonder this morning is, what is it that we worship? And so that might be, you hear that phrase and you go, okay, I don't, I don't even know how to qualify what worship is. Um, and so I think a good idea for us to understand this word is, what are the things that you pattern your life to pursue? Um, so when, when you look at your life, if you were to sit down and look at your bank statement, or you were to sit down and look at the way you spent your time this last week, or the way that you use the talents and gifts that God has given you, what are those things used in pursuit of? Uh, the way that you use your time, your talent, and your treasure, it's a pretty good indication of what or who you worship, okay? And so that's kind of what we want to look at this morning, is if you were to look at the pattern of your life, what is it pursuing, 
Okay? What are you really, truly pursuing? And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see that there is one who is genuinely worthy of being pursued. Um, and uh, there's lots of reasons why he is genuinely worthy of being pursued. But the primary, pri the primary one is that he has come to us. Right? And so when we, when we worship God, it's not as though we were earning or working our way to him. Uh, when we worship God, it is the fact that he has, he has come to us. Right? When we're introduced to Jesus in this passage, he's, he's the lamb who was slain. And so there's this understanding that within us there's a brokenness before God. There's something that needs to be dealt with so that our relationship could be right with God. And what God has done is instead of telling us we should fix it and mend it, he has sent his own son to take away the consequences and penalty of sin. God has pursued us. And so as God has pursued us and as God has first loved us, we then return that love to him. We reciprocate as we see his goodness and his kindness and his power and his justice and his mercy and his forgiveness. And we see the, the, the life of his son given on a cross so that we could be saved from the consequences of our sin. We worship not because we, we have to, but because we know the goodness of God and we want to pursue him as he has pursued us. And so that's, that's what we're called to do, really, in this passage and throughout the scriptures, is we want to remember who God is. And if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back on YouTube and look at Revelation chapter 4 with us and just kind of see who God is. Um, we're going to get more of that in this passage, but I just think there's so much value in just being at the feet of God and recognizing him for who he is and what he's done. And, and, and that's what these passages, as John gets to see God in his throne room, that's what they're leading us to do. The other thing that they're leading us to do is after this chapter, we get into the seals. And so these, uh, these scrolls and these seals that are going to be broken. And as these scrolls and seals are broken, we, we see God's serious judgment of sin. Um, and so there's really only two categories of people. Uh, there's those who are in worship of God and are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then there are those who are in worship of the creation and don't know the redemption that comes through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so within the scriptures, God deals with each person in that way. Either, either we are in Christ and we've been saved from the consequences of sin because we've trusted that Jesus' blood on the cross has paid for that sin. He died in our place and for our sin. And then he was raised uh, in our place and for our life so that we could have newness of life. And, and if, you're, if you believe that, if you trust that, if you begin to pattern your life after that, then you're a Christian and you're saved and you're redeemed. If you haven't done that, then as we go through this book of Revelation, we're going to see that God is going to make you pay for your sin yourself. And those are really the two options that exist before us. We can either trust that Jesus Christ has taken away the consequences of sin and we're free from that penalty, or we can pay the consequences of sin ourselves. Um, the encouragement throughout the scriptures is that you would be reconciled to God. And God actually calls us who are in Christ to beg you to be reconciled to God, that you would not be in a position where you're going to pay for the consequences of your own sin, but that you would look on the cross, that you would see Jesus' love, you would see his forgiveness, that you would see God's justice poured out on Christ so that you could be forgiven and that you would trust him. As the church, we're actually called to this world around us to say, please be reconciled to God. Be at one with him through what Christ has done for you. And so as we get into God's serious handling of sin, you have to understand that uh, he's also serious about forgiveness. 
He's also very serious about forgiveness and love to the point that he would give his own son that we could be saved, that we could be reconciled, that we could be redeemed and bought into his family. And so as we approach this passage, um, I think we should each ask ourselves what we worship. What is the pattern in the course of our life? Um, is, it, is it after the things that everyone else is chasing or are we chasing God? Is it after the comfort and ease and material wealth that this American lifestyle has to offer? Or, or is Jesus worthy to be pursued? Uh, is, is he worthy for us to say, you know what, I, I'm going to choose to live my life differently. He saved me, and he saved me for a purpose, and that purpose is that I would be light and darkness. And so if I'm going to be light and darkness, then I shouldn't look like everybody else. I should be holy. I should be separate. I should, I should live a different lifestyle. And that means that the, the, the treasure, the talent, and the time that God has given me on this earth, I'm going to use it in pursuit of him and for his glory. And so as we approach this, uh, I, I just, look, pray with me real quick. Father, this morning, uh, we come to you longing to know you more. At least I, I hope that's the prayer of each heart here this morning, that they have come here this morning to know you more, to be drawn closer to you, uh, to enjoy the grace and love that you have for each and every one of us, the, the gifts that you give and the, the unending, unceasing, never giving up love that you have for us, that we would enjoy you and be drawn closer to you. And God, I recognize that, that in my journey, there was a time where I thought I had it figured out without you. I thought I could do this life on my own. And the harder I tried, the more I experienced failure and death. The more that I tried, the less I felt alive. And you drew me into a place where I would submit to you, where I would bend the knee and I would recognize your love for me. And then instead of trying in my own strength and my own ability that I would submit my will to what you say is right, what you say is best, and that I would allow you to empower me and live differently. And God, you, you show me each and every day, each and every week, areas where I need to grow, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you, you love me, and you discipline me, and you guide me to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And that's your will, that I would be transformed into the image of your son. And so I thank you for that. And I also recognize that there are people in this room who, who don't know what that journey is. They're just learning about who you are. Father, will you make yourself known to them? Spirit, will you enlighten the eyes of their hearts so that they could see you for who you truly are? Jesus, will your love be real to them today? And I pray that they would turn their lives from pursuing selfish things and instead pursue you. And God, there are those who have made a decision to trust in your son's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and yet we still struggle. We're still flesh and blood, and we still have impulses that pull us away from you. And so, God, will you show us where those impulses have control so that we could surrender to you and grow closer, be more like your son? I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. This is John the Apostle speaking. We know that uh, Jesus has drawn him into the throne room of heaven.
He says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so there's this one seated on the throne. We understand this to be God the Father. And in his right hand, this position of power and authority, he holds a scroll. And so this is, this is symbolizing, this is showing us that God has a plan. And that his plan is to judge sin. That's what these scrolls are about as they open up. That God is going to judge sin. He's done that and he's forgiven through his son. But when he returns, he's going to eradicate sin from the earth. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. All of these things are taken away because Jesus will judge sin once and for all, remove it from the earth, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth on which these things do not reside. So God is going to judge sin, and in God's right hand is the authority to do that, to wipe sin out, to cast it into the lake of fire as we get into the end of the book. Then he's going to deal with it once and for all. And it's either already been dealt with through Jesus forgiving us, or we're going to have these consequences and God's wrath on us. And so that's what these things resemble. They're God's power. It's, it's His ability to have power and authority to judge. And it's sealed with seven seals. And so it's completely sealed. God's judgment is, is coming. It is done. No one's going to say, hey, I got a better idea, God. And Him go, let me listen. Like, He's figured it out. He knows what's best. He's going to bring it about. And then there's this mighty angel, and he proclaims, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. And so we see that neither angelic or demonic nor human effort can bring about God's plans. Uh, there's nothing that we can do or that angelic or demonic beings could do that would change God's plans. He is going to see them through. Um, the question is, are we going to be on his side and a part of what he's doing, or are we going to be against him? But that's, that's what we see here. And, and God's plans are good. They're best. He always brings about what is best. Uh, we long for justice. Whether you recognize it or not, you long for justice. Usually in somebody else's life, not so much in yours. But we long for it. And what we see is that John sees that God's plans are, that nobody can open it. We're incapable of making it happen. And he weeps and he weeps because no one is found worthy to open the scroll or even to look on it. And, and why does he weep? He weeps because we're helpless and hopeless without God's plans being fulfilled. We, if God doesn't act, we are, we are doomed. If God doesn't act, then there's nothing good that's going to come about. He weeps and he weeps. And within this, I think what we have to recognize is that our culture screams a different answer than this. What our culture screams is that through our own human efforts and through our own abilities, we can bring about what is right and what is best. We understand this to be humanism. It's, it's the philosophy and the thinking of the age that permeates almost everything around us. And then you can go a step further. And secular humanism says that we can be good without God. And not only does humanity have all the potential to make the earth the best thing that it could be, if we could just get ourselves organized right, if we could just get the right leader, if just the right party was in charge, if only the right president was 
was there. If only the right laws existed, right? So all of our human efforts, we think that if we could get these things in place, then we could get the world going in the right direction. And, and the problem with both of these views is that they, they neglect to bring God into the picture. Um, and, and what this way of thinking does is it leads to groupthink based upon fleshly indulgences. Uh, basically what happens when people are in control is like, I'd look for you to be under control, but I don't want you to know what I'm doing in secret. I'd like to be able to get you and everybody around you to do the, the right thing, but I don't want you to know what I'm doing in secret. And so sin still just permeates everything. We're urged to think and do as everyone else rather than thoughtfully assess whether something is right and good according to godly virtue and morality. And if you're not clear on this, godly virtue and morality has been the same since the time of Jesus. God's virtue and morality have been the same since creation. These things are fixed, they're eternal, they're timeless, just as God's character is fixed and eternal and timeless. I understand that if you go throughout the history of the world, you'll see that people have tweaked what is right and what is good. And our culture does the same thing. But, but God doesn't shift or change. He is consistent, he is faithful, and his ways are always best. But this is the problem with the world that we live in and the society that we, we live in is that it ignores God. It ignores God's word. It doesn't see Christ's work of redemption as necessary. It doesn't understand that the Holy Spirit is the only one who could bring sanctification in us. It doesn't understand that fa the Father's work, it, that it's his job of managing the timing and execution of justice on heaven and earth. It doesn't see Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, appearances, ascension into glory, and return in righteous judgment as necessary things. Because after all, we can figure this out on our own. And what's interesting is this all springs from basically the Renaissance period and a false doctrine that Christ's nature was only human and not divine. We should recognize that this way of thinking should be purged from our minds and our hearts as poison. And so we have to come to grips with why John weeps. He weeps because without God acting, we're helpless, we're hopeless. Without Jesus' return, there is no final justice. Do you know that there's people who get away with evil in this life? Or do they? Because when Christ returns, they won't. There is a final judgment that awaits. The, all the wrongs that have not been righted by human efforts, by human government that God instituted for a good purpose, all the things that were incapable of making right, when Christ returns, they will be dealt with. And so what we're left to question is, there's certainly wrong in my life. Has that been dealt with by Jesus' death on the cross? Have I admitted it, confessed it for what it is, and seeked wholeness through what only Christ can offer me? Or am I still in my sins? Because if I'm still in my sins, Revelation is a frightening book. If I'm still in my sins, God is a frightening God. But if I am in Christ and I am forgiven, then there's no condemnation. If I am in Christ, though I fear God because of His power, I am not living afraid of Him. I'm actually living in freedom with Him. And so we wonder who is worthy. And what one of these elders tells John, he says, do not weep. 
the lion from the tribe of Judah. That's a promise that was made in Genesis chapter 49, that there would be one from the tribe of Judah who would rule and reign as the Messiah. The root of David, that's from Isaiah chapter 11, again a messianic promise. He says, he has conquered and is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so what we have to understand is that God is acting on his promises and we can live in anticipation, not anxiety. Uh, does this world ever make you anxious? Yeah. Uh, is there ever news that you read it and you go, wow, what's happening? What's going on around me? Things are not as they should be. See, God has instilled in all of our hearts an understanding of what is truly right and what is truly best. It's been corrupted by sin. We're all made in God's image and we all have an idea of what is good and what is best. But it's been corrupted in us. But still, that spark remains from God. That spark of divinity in us that he made us in his image. That we would know what is good and when we don't see what is good, we say, this isn't right. But Jesus has conquered. He's able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. He is the one who's going to cause God's promises to come about. He's already causing them to come about in my life. Is he causing them to come about in your life? Do you know what it is to be in relationship with Jesus and see him transform you? Have you, have you gone from a pattern of life that was self-centered and uh, always focused on what you could get from other people? Uh, maybe you wanted to give every once in a while, but the end motive was always something for you. Uh, that's who we are in our flesh. We're self-centered individuals who seek what we can take from any situation. And, and that's understood as sin. Because if we're right with God, we, we worship Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And then we love our neighbor as ourselves. It doesn't say you love God with everything you have and take advantage of other people. People. This is the problem, is that when God is not worshipped, we always take advantage of other people. And so he's calling us to a different place. He's calling us to see our need of him. John sees the need and he weeps because he's afraid that God's promises aren't going to happen. And, and there's this reminder that there's one who is going to make it happen. Jesus is going to bring these things about. And so he tells them that there's one who is able to do it. And then in verse 6, he says, Then I saw one like a lamb, a slaughtered lamb, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your, by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So John, he's told that there's one who is able, and then his eyes see the one who is able, this one like a slaughtered lamb. This is actually used 27 times of Jesus in the book of Revelation, uh, that he is the one who died for the consequences of our sin. He, we're constantly reminded, Jesus died for you. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus paid the consequences of sin for you. Jesus has accomplished what we could never do on our own. He has satisfied God's wrath and hatred of sin so that we could be made whole again. This is who he is. He says he's standing in the midst of the throne. 
with four living creatures. Again, these are the angelic beings in God's throne room and the elders, which are representative believers throughout the ages. It says he had seven horns. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 24, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 7. There is no Daniel chapter 24. Don't try and look it up. Um, uh, and it represents authority and strength of a ruler. And then these seven eyes, he explains that. He says these are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And we've seen the seven spirits or seven lampstands show up again and again. This is the worldwide ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually says in John 16, it's better if he leaves so that the Spirit can come. The same Spirit that ministers to you and I this morning is also ministering to people in Ireland, Afghanistan, and all around the world. It says he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And so Jesus is, he's taking this throne and, and, he, and he, he, or excuse me, this, uh, this, this seal, this scroll. And he's showing that he's the one who's able to open it. This is something that's understood about him. And then there's this imagery of Old Testament worship in the temple and uh, the prayers of the saints. Uh, you understand that saints are not just people that are in stained glass. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You're a holy one. You've been set apart. You've been moved for an intended purpose by God. He saved you so that... You would be different and represent him to the world. They sing this new song. And it says he's worthy because he was slaughtered and he purchased. He redeemed and set free a people. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. One of the things that we recognize is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the consequences of our sin, but he also purchased us. He, he bought us out of slavery to sin and bought us into his family, and now we become adopted sons. We, become, we, we, we were brought into the family of God and we're made, we're made ambassadors. And so there's this recognition that I am not my own. I am not autonomous. I do not call the shots. Instead, my will is subject to what Christ says is best. Because he is best. I subject myself not, out, not because I'm forced to. I subject myself to Christ because I want to. And so this song that they sing, it, it celebrates propitiation, which is God's, uh, the satisfaction of God's wrath, that, that uh, justice was executed when Christ died on the cross for you and I. It, it celebrates his all-embracing redemption. This all-embracing redemption is a promise that God made several places in the Old Testament. One of them is Ezekiel chapter 17. And there in verses 22 through 24, it says, This is what the Lord God says. He says, I will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high, towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it will bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. We understand that this tree is Christ's cross. We understand that this this tree that God planted in Jerusalem was Jesus on the cross. And all who would take shelter under the branches of this cross, it says that uh, then all the trees of the field, all the people of the world will know that, Jesus, that God is the Lord. He will bring down the tall tree and make low the tall tree. I will cause the green tree to wither and make the withered tree thrive. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do it. 
And so he promised. He promised a Messiah. He promised a Savior. He promised to plant this tree in Jerusalem. We understand this tree to be the cross of Christ. And when Jesus died there, he took on the sins of all of the world. And he bore them for us so that all who would come to this tree. How, how do you have to come to it? You have to come to it withered. You have to come to it humble. You have to come to it seeing your need. If you look at the cross and think you're fine, you've missed the point. We look at the cross and we see that we needed someone to save us. You can't approach the, the cross with pride. You approach it with humility, recognizing that sin is serious and that God has dealt with it. But this is this all-embracing redemption. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what nationality or blood flows through you. Christ has purchased you. This song also celebrates sanctification. We've been made a kingdom, and we've been made priests. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is God's will. You ready? Your sanctification. That you would keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all these offenses, and we also, as we have also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is God's will for each and every one of us, that we would be saved by the blood of Christ, that his death is in our place and for our sins, and his resurrection was in our place and for our life, that we would be made new creations, that God would cause us bit by bit, day by day, little by little, to be transformed into the image of his Son, that his values, his virtue, his morality, his ethics, everything that is of God would be transferred onto us by his grace and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we would be made into different people. And so this is what Jesus has accomplished for us, and so he's worthy. The other thing that this song celebrates is his divine eternal kingdom. That, that Jesus is, is both God, he is, and, and he is king. He will reign and he will rule. He should now within our hearts. And if he does now within our hearts, 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Not my own possession, but God's own possession. I belong to Him so that I would proclaim His praises. The one who called me out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Uh, for we were once not a people, but now we are God's people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so we understand that Jesus has accomplished all these things. And if He has accomplished all these things, and he loves me like this. And he saves me like this. And he gives me purpose like this. And he, and he gives me new life like this. And he develops character in me like this. If he does this, then why am I chasing the things of this world? Why am I not chasing him? Isn't he, doesn't he deserve it? Do I really think the material possessions will give me everything that I need? Do I really think the right form of government is going to make it happen? Do I really think the next, uh, the next experiential high will give me what I'm looking for? Do I really believe that? Because I tried it for a while and it was stupid. 
It never worked. But there is one who when I pursue him, I'm constantly filled. I'm constantly content. I, I'm, I'm in awe of what he does. He shows me areas where that's not true of me, but then I, I submit again and I allow him to empower me and change me. And I just continue to lay my mind and my emotions and my will at the, at the feet of Jesus so that he could lead me. And when I do that, life is good. Even when it's difficult, it's good. And so I don't give up. But instead, I keep looking at Jesus. And that's what happens here. Verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And also the living creatures and the elders, their number was countless, thousands, plus thousands of thousands. His point is that there's too many to count. That there are so many who know the life of Christ. There's a lot of things that make Jesus real within this world. His creation shows us his power. You can't look at creation and go, probably just happened. I mean, you could, but it doesn't, it doesn't, like, come on. God has made himself visible within creation. He's made his power known to us. But then he's made himself known throughout human history and through the word of God, through the nation of Israel, through how he dealt with sin within the nation of Israel, how he made promises to the nation of Israel that there would be a Messiah who would come and save us from our sins. And then this person of Jesus shows up. And it's not just stories in a book, but it's eyewitness accounts of those who watched the Messiah walk among them. They heard him speak. They heard him proclaim what he was going to do. He fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies within his lifetime. The odds are just astronomical that anyone would do that. And Jesus did it. And then he died on a cross in front of many eyewitnesses, one of them being John who stood there when Jesus told him to take care of his mother. And then John saw him raised from the dead three days later. And then he watched him appear to hundreds of eyewitnesses over the course of 40 days. Then he was commissioned by him along with the rest of the apostles. He ascended into heaven. He promised to return. These aren't just things that we read about. This is real. And thousands upon thousands have believed it and had their lives changed. Too many to count. And they said in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered. That word slaughtered in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. It means a one-time action with lasting effects into the future. So he was slaughtered once for all. There is nothing else for us to do to be saved. There is no act to perform to be saved. You believe that Jesus' death is efficacious 100%. It is totally effective to cover sin and you're saved. And it says because that's who he is, he is worthy to receive. And that word, it means to take hold of or grasp. Um, a lot of times you read a passage like this. It says he's, he's worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. You read that and you might think, well, he didn't have it, but since he did that, now we can give it to him. That's not the idea. It wasn't like Jesus was like one day he, he lost it and like the keys and couldn't find it or something. Like these things have always been Jesus's. In eternity past, this was the plan that he would execute this, that the son would give his life to save us. He didn't lose it and then gain it. Christ has always been able to take hold of and grasp these things. It's made known to us because he was slaughtered on our behalf. 
And because that's the case, uh, he should have this place in us. We should say, you have these things already. So we recognize that miracle working power is yours. We recognize that riches, abundant wealth and treasure. And I don't just mean like material, abundant wealth and treasure. Though God is the creator of everything. So if you own it, he made it. Like he has it. But I mean spiritual riches and treasure that he would give us all of the spiritual blessings. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has withheld no spiritual blessing. That we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has given us everything. That wisdom, clarity of truth and direction, those belong to God. You could, you could try and get it somewhere else, but it wouldn't make sense, so go to God. That strength or the capability to bring about what, is, what needs to happen is His. That value and the, the recognition of who He is and blessing, that, that means fine language. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Fine language. Anybody ever written a love poem? I, me neither. But... <laughs> <laughs> but like you, you look at you look at the woman that you love, your bride, and you think of all the things you might want to say, and maybe you're good at it, maybe you're not. But the, this fine language that you would say, I love this about you, and I care. This is what I love about you. The idea is that we would do this, that we would look at Jesus and we say, You deserve to be described with the best words, because you are. And he's worthy because he was slaughtered. And so they sing this song to him. They praise him. And in verse 13, it says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the idea is, since he is worthy, we should treat him that way. Uh, since Jesus saved you from your sin, uh, you, you should treat him like that. Since Jesus rose from the dead to give you new life, you should honor him. Uh, since, since he will execute justice and eradicate evil on his return, uh, we, we should treat him like that. He's worthy, so treat him that way. And in verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen. That means let it be so. He's worthy. We should treat him that way. And angelic beings say, let it be so. Do it, essentially. Like the original Nike slogan right here from heaven. Just do it. He's worthy. So live it. He's worthy. So, so go after him. He, he, he loves you and he saved you. So, so live your life for him. He gives you new life and new identity and his spirit indwells you. So live for him. Let it be so. And the elders fell down. Uh, that word means to be destroyed. That, that when they looked at Jesus and they saw him like a slaughtered lamb and they understood what he had done for them. And they already know this, but when they see it this way, they fall down destroyed. They recognize that there is nothing in them that is worthy of him. But he loves them anyway. There's nothing that they've done to be in this place. There's, there's nothing, they haven't earned it. It's just been fully graced to them. And so they fall down, they're destroyed, and they worship. That means to show humble submission and respect. And so I think what this passage wants us to do is it wants us to see who Jesus is. It, it wants us to recognize that in heaven... 
This is how he's seen. In heaven, this is who he's honored as. Within God's throne room, this is understood of Jesus. And what was Christ's prayer for? How did he teach us to pray? That it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have to ask ourselves, what do we worship? Who do we worship? Why? And so just kind of run through these questions with me. And Have you fallen down at Jesus' feet to worship Him? Have you done this? In, in humble submission and respect, would you recognize Jesus as the one who's saved you from your sins? The one who, the justice and the penalty of sin that should have been on me, he took it for me? Have you fallen down at his feet and worshipped him? Are you in humble submission to Christ? Have you given up on human effort as a solution to your problems? Did any of you have problems? Like, you keep running out of money. You're the average American, and you've got like, what, $12,000 of credit card debt. And you keep wondering, why do I keep... Uh, every once in a while I get out of it, but then I just find myself in it again. Why do I keep doing this? And, and so you, you take that, not to, not to a spreadsheet or to some bank, but you take it to the feet of Jesus. And you say, God, why does this keep happening in my life? And, and what if he were to say, well, the problem is, is you love material things. You're constantly leveraging what you have within your treasure for more stuff. And so, you know, you've got an idol in your life and it needs to be dealt with. Would you let him talk to you that way? Now, the scripture says we can do a couple of things. We can, we can be filled with the Spirit, or we can quench Him and we can grieve Him. You could pour water on Him and tell Him to be quiet, and then that would grieve His heart because He knows what's best for you, but you're ignoring what it is. Or maybe, maybe money's not your thing. You're doing just fine. Uh, you, you don't need more stuff. Maybe you really struggle with anxiety. And... Uh, your husband, he's not doing what you want him to do. Your kids, they got problems all the time. A garden in the backyard, I don't even know why I try anymore. Right? I don't know, I don't know what's weighing on you, but you're experiencing anxiety. Is it always just a human answer to those things? Is it another psychology course? Is it another round to see the doctor? I mean, those are, that's okay. Understand how your mind works. But have you ever taken those things to Jesus? Have you ever said, I'm really anxious about the world that I live in. I'm really anxious about the direction of my son. I'm really anxious. I, I, I'm like, I'm really struggling with these things. And you take them to him. And you let him answer the question. And he might do that through his word. He might do that through his spirit speaking to you. He might do that because you're in a Bible study and you share what you're struggling with with a fellow believer. And they say, I, you know, I went through something like that. Let me tell you what God did in my life. He might not do the same thing in yours, but let me tell you how he can be trusted. 
What are your problems? And have you taken them to God? And what we have to understand is that human effort always produces more sin and divine power produces righteousness. If you don't know Galatians chapter 5, go ahead and read it. And what it talks about is it talks about the flesh and the spirit. These two things are in opposition to each other. And within the flesh, we have our own abilities and our own power, and we can walk in that. And what the, what the Galatians says there is that the fruit of the, or the, the evidence of the flesh, you read, you read the deeds of the flesh, and you go, wow, I'd rather not have any of those. Unless you're in love with sin, then you might go for it. But you, you read it, and you go, human effort produces sin. And then he says, but I say walk by the Spirit, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit and we have divine power within us, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you, and that divine power is going to lead you to things which are good, which are best, which are of God. And so you have these two power sources, if you're a Christian, available to you at all times. You can either walk in the flesh and produce sin, or you can walk by the Spirit and submit your will to the Spirit of God and allow Him to lead you and experience righteousness. Those are the two things that a Christian has available to them. If you're not a Christian, then the Spirit of God does not in, live inside you because uh, Christ is not yours. And so uh, if Christ is not yours and you are not His, then the spiritual blessings are not yours either. And so God is calling you to be reconciled so that you can have His life and His power and be redeemed and know what it is to truly be alive. The, the offer of the gospel is quite ridiculous. That we would fight God, that we would push God, that we would tell him we don't want anything to do with him, that we would tell him we know better than him, that we would push him away, and he would say, will you just let me hug you, forgive you, bless you, and make you whole? That's the story of the prodigal son. He tells his dad he wishes he was dead. He runs away and he squanders the father's wealth. And as soon as he gets in the father's sight, he can't wait to hug him. The offer of the gospel is ridiculous. And so why would you turn it down? But this human effort, it produces sin and divine power produces righteousness. What is your power source? Take a look at the last week of your life. What's your power source? Take a look at the last month, or three months, or six months. What's your power source? Is the Spirit of God, uh, is your will and your mind, your emotions and your will, are they in submission to Him so that He can lead you and He is your power source? Or is your flesh and human effort what's moving you? You read Galatians 5. And if you see the deeds of the flesh, the answer is obvious. If you see the fruit of the Spirit, the answer is obvious. Now, all of us are probably some collection of both of those things over the last week, months, and six months. What God will do within us is He will slowly guide us to be more of Him and less of ourselves as we submit to Him. And so this is what this... That's worship, right? That's worship. To say, God, you get to control the course and the pattern of my life. That's worship. Or you can say, God, you don't, and I'm going to let something else determine the course and the pattern of my life, and you can worship that. Everybody's doing it. Who are you worshiping? Right now, we're going to take uh, communion together, and uh, the band's going to come.
Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.